Turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter number 1. We'll read verses 16 through 21. And that'll be the passage that we cover from James 1 today. James chapter 1 and verse number 16. The Bible says, Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. The section that follows, beginning in verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, may be the most familiar section of this first chapter in the book of James. Before we get to that, we have these verses that we just read, which focus on receiving God's word. And that's the title, that's the topic this morning, receiving the word of God. Now, it's not going to help you to hear God's word. This is, this is what is covered in verses 22 and following. It's not going to help you to hear God's word if you have no intention of committing to putting it into practice in your life. But you're not going to be able to put it into practice. And you're not going to receive the blessing and the benefit that comes from doing the word of God that's spoken of in verse 25 until you first hear and receive God's word. So, Hearing God's word, according to verse number 22, it's very clear it's not the ultimate step, it's not the final step, but understand it is a necessary first step. If I want the blessing that comes from doing the word of God, I first have to hear the word of God and then do the word of God and then I'm blessed by the word of God, but it starts with verses 16 through 21 hearing and receiving God's word. And so, you're in the right place this morning. What a blessing that Sunday school is full. Just enough chairs. I didn't print enough bulletins. I'm glad that you're here. You're in the right place, doing the right thing. You've got a Bible in front of you and a preacher reading God's word and declaring God's word. What these verses we just read focus on is the attitude that we carry into receiving the word of God because the attitude with which we approach what we're doing right now has a lot to do with whether or not we ultimately become doers of the word verse 22 and doers of the work verse 25 and our lives are filled with the blessings that follow so we're going to take these verses one at a time and comment on each as we read it and see what God has to say to us about receiving his word. First of all, verse 16, do not err, my beloved brethren. To err is to wander from the right way, to deviate from the true course or purpose, to miss the right way in morals or in religion, to deviate from the path of line or duty, to stray by design or mistake, to err is to make a mistake, to commit an error, to do wrong from ignorance or inattention. It's to wander 
or to ramble. So basically, it's to get off track. It's to wander out of the good way and the right way, to deviate from what is true and what is right, to urge to commit an error, to make a mistake. And we all have this capacity. We all have this inclination. We all tend toward error. The, the hymn writer put it this way in that song, Come Thou Found. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But what God told us in James 1.16 is, don't do it. Do not err, my beloved brethren. You know what we often do when we sin, when we when we yield to temptation, when we go the right... You know what we do? We excuse it. We justify it. We minimize it. We put it in terms of, well, I just made a mistake. Yeah, you did. And God said not to. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't do it. Stay right. Stay true. Keep heading the right direction. Don't deviate. Don't get off track. Don't allow the devil to push you off course. Verse 13 of James 1 says, God's not the one tempting you. We, we read last time, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He's faithful. He'll always make a way to escape so that you can endure temptation. You do not have to sin. So do not err. My beloved brethren, Mark James 1, turn with me to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. We'll look at a few other passages together this morning. Matthew 22. In verse 29, here's a statement that Jesus makes. The word er is used 24 times in the Bible. A great majority of those references focus on that thing or that person that causes us to err. And the teaching, if we had time to study those passages, would be that we need to be really careful about who and what we allow to influence us. But in Matthew 22, Jesus, he centers in on the way that we can protect ourselves from error, the way that we can do what James 1.16 says and, and not err. Matthew 22, verse number 29, look what Jesus says. Jesus answered and said to them, Ye do err, not what we want to do, but what was their problem? Why did they make a mistake? Why did they fall into error? Why were they deviating from the right path? Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. How can I keep myself from going the wrong direction? How can I keep myself from being led astray? How can I keep myself from making a mistake? Number one, I got to know the scripture. In order to do what's right, I have to know what is right. In order to know what is right, I've got to study to show myself approved unto God. I've got to read it. I've got to memorize it. I've got to listen when it's preached. I've got to try to gain all the knowledge, all the facts and information that I can from the Bible. You do err. How? Not knowing the scriptures. Their problem, first of all, is an intellectual problem. But that's not the only component. That's only half of the equation. 
You are not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. We've got to know the scriptures intellectually. We've got to study and learn the Bible. But then we need to experience. We've got to know experientially the power of God. We need to, we need to experience His enabling to do the things that the Bible says to do. He is able to keep us from falling according to Jude 1 and verse 24. So we need to know, that is we need to experience the power of God in our lives that come when we yield, that comes when we yield to his will, when we submit in obedience to what we've learned the Bible says. So do not err. My beloved brethren, back to James 1 and now verse 17. James 1 and verse number 17. The Bible says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. We've alluded to that already today. God's perfect. He doesn't change. He doesn't need to change. He loves us. He always has. He always will. His love is everlasting love. Good, merciful, kind, gracious. He's always been. He always will be. Just, holy, righteous, true. No verbiness. He's not one way yesterday and a different way tomorrow. If you learn who God is, that's a constant. And every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. This is a great verse all by itself. Because everything good that you enjoy in life, it comes from a good and gracious God. And it would help us to stop and acknowledge that. It would help us to stop and express some gratitude for the most basic of blessings that God sends our way. Acts 17.25 says he gives us life and breath and all things. You can breathe this morning because God is good. You got out of bed this morning. That was a gift from God. 1 Timothy 6.17, he gives us all things richly to enjoy. God wants you to enjoy life. He's made it possible for you to enjoy life and doesn't have to do with all the latest and the best and the most expensive things. He can fill your heart. Joy and peace and contentment and satisfaction and the joy that we have in life of family and of friends and of freedom and of comfort all comes from a good God. Psalm 68 19 says, He daily loadeth us with benefits. Everything good I have in my life, I, I, I tend to give myself the credit for far too much of it. But I owe it all to God. Everything good that you enjoy in life, you have God to thank for it. But think about this verse in its context here in James chapter 1. What, what do we deal with in verses 12 through 15? We dealt with temptation. When the devil draws you away, when you are enticed by your lusts, when there is an opportunity for you to prove whether you love God more or yourself or the world, or you have an opportunity to sin or to do what's right. Verse 16 says, now don't err. Don't yield to the temptation. Don't be led astray. Verse 17 says, you need to be reminded of the goodness of 
of God. Because it's when we fail to properly remember and acknowledge and consider God's goodness that we fall into error and temptation and to sin. Do you see the connection? What will help keep me from error is remembering and considering how good God is. 1 Samuel 12, 24, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things he hath done for you. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. And the love of Christ constraineth us. And the, the more I will focus on the goodness of God, that'll help constrain. That is, that's, that's to keep my life within some constraints. It's way more powerful than rules. Love is. It's way more powerful than somebody in authority with a heavy hand enforcing all the standards. If you would just love God with all your heart because of how good He is, that would keep you going the right direction. Psalm 27, 13, you can write down the reference. It says, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Have you thought about today how good God is to you? Have you, did you think about yesterday how good God has been to you? Has it crossed your mind this week just how amazingly gracious and kind God is? we tend to allow the difficult things in our lives to cloud our vision of the goodness of God. You go through something hard, somebody does something to you, um, it, you experience hardship and difficulty, and everybody does, that's addressed in James chapter 1, and we tend to forget that God is good. We, we, we tend to think that God is doing this to us. Verse 17 says, no, every, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Verse 18, of his own will... Begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. There are three truths here to mention briefly. First of all, that salvation starts with the will of God. Of his own will begat he us. That begat, that's being born again. That's the new birth. That's becoming a child of God, entering into the family of God. And the Lord is the one who initiated that relationship. God desired to save you before you ever desired to be saved. It is not, he is not willing that any should perish, right? But that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says that his will is that all should be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. You know why? If, if you're saved today, you know why you're saved? Because God wanted you to be saved. So he made it possible for you to be saved. And so he offered you salvation. And he sent you a gospel witness. His Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin. Of his own will begat he us. God, God didn't have to save you if he didn't want to. God could have allowed humanity once fallen into sin to perish forever separated from his presence. He didn't have to redeem Adam. He didn't have to redeem Eve. The moment they fell into sin was the moment that he devised a plan whereby to forgive those sins so man could be restored to a right relationship with him. God's will that you're saved. Of his own will begat he us. Number two, salvation comes about by 
the Word of God. It starts with the will of God, and it comes about by the Word of God. Of His own will begat He us with the Word of truth. You know how somebody gets saved? They believe the gospel. You know how they know the gospel is? God wrote it down in the Bible. If God did not record for us the plan of salvation, the method of salvation, the way of salvation, how would we know? These things have written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. Salvation comes by the word of God. And it's a supernatural and a life-giving book. 1 Peter 1.23 is a cross-reference, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God. This book is the agent of the new birth. This book brings about salvation. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, Psalm 19.7. The word of God is quick and powerful, Hebrews 4.12. It's alive and it gives life. So salvation starts with the will of God. Salvation comes about by the word of God. And and thirdly from the verse, salvation results in the work of God. Salvation results in the work of God. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. Here's how the verse reads, would read from our perspective. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we might go to heaven when we die. Right? That's what I was interested in when I trusted Jesus as my Savior. I didn't want to go to hell. I wanted to go to heaven. That's why I got saved. That's not why God saved me. Now that's going to happen. That's guaranteed. That's the promise. But why did God make me his child? Why did God give me his word? Verse number 18, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. If a man be in Christ, he is a new creature. What does that mean? Old things are passed away. All things are become new. It means your life is different now. Yes, your destination is different. Praise God. That's not the only thing supposed to be different. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, as demand should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before ordained that we should walk in them. God saved you to change your life, to equip you to work for him. You're not saved by works, you're saved to work. Revelation 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. God had a purpose in creating you, and sin wrecked all of it. And so his purpose in saving you from sin was not only to deliver you from its eternal consequence in a lake of fire, it was also to reclaim the purpose that he had for your life. That you might glorify him and walk with him and serve him and please him. That's all part of the package that you got when you trusted Jesus Christ by the will of God and the word of God. It's for the work of God. Now, the purpose for which God saved you, how's that going in your life? 
Have you ever bought something because it was supposed to do a certain thing and then it didn't? That's pretty frustrating, isn't it? Like, you remember being a kid and going to the dollar store and you were all excited about that toy and what it was going to do and all the fun you were going to have and it broke before you got home? Like, you invest, I mean, kids today, they invest an entire dollar twenty-five. In that thing, whatever it is, right? And there's a lot of disappointment because this is not fulfilling its purpose. Imagine being God. The price that he paid to save your soul. Is he getting anything out of that? Now, look, look he's good, he's gracious, he's love. He's got to take the salvation away. But I wonder if the reason God saved me I wonder if he's getting anything out of it. Verse number 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, that every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. So wherefore, that is on the basis of the power of God's word. Verse 18. On the basis of God's intentions for my life. Verse 18. On the basis of his goodness. Verse 17. And his purpose that I not err. Verse 16, what's going what's gonna to help me fulfill God's purpose? What's going to help his word be effective? What's, what's going to help me not fall into error? I need to be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. Somebody said God gave you two ears and one mouth and he wants you to use them proportionately. Think about that for a second. What does that mean? He wants you to listen twice as much as you talk. That's why you have two of one thing and one of the other. We tend to do a whole lot of this and not near enough of this, right? Be swift to hear. Swift in the dictionary means moving a great distance over a large space in a short time. Moving with celerity or velocity. It means fleet, rapid, quick, speedy, ready, prompt. Are you ready to hear God's word? Speedy, coming without delay. Come on, are you swift to hear? Here's what I can recognize in my own life. There are times, I was going to say rarely, but that's not true. There, There are often times when I need to be corrected or instructed or reproved, right? And that's why God gave me a wife. And that was not a joke. <laughs> kind of. So seriously, here, here's what I can recognize as my tendency. Somebody gives me advice. Somebody tells me I want to do something. Somebody tells me I want to stop something. And I eventually come around to listening to that advice. Like at first I resist it. At first, I argue against it. At first, I reject it. At first, I think, no, that's not right. And then a day or week, a month, eventually I'm like, "Mm, you know, yeah, they were right. I was wrong. You You know what that's not being? That is not being swift to hear. That's being slow to hear. 
And the reason we're not swift to hear is we do not acknowledge how badly we need God's help and how badly we need God's direction and how badly we need the guidance of those that God has put over us and around us. We need to cut out the eventually and expedite this process and pay attention when people in our lives give us instruction and correction and show us from the word of God how our lives could be different, how our lives could be better. It'd be swift to hear. Are we ready to give attention to the word of God when we come to church? Are we prompt to the preaching when we come to church? Are we swift to hear? And oftentimes the reason we're not is because we are swift to speak. And the Bible says we ought to be the other way. Slow to speak. How many of you went to the young adult conference this week? Uh, the morning that the young men preached, there was a young man from Austin. And uh, I think he was the last message. Preached from Psalm 23. Remember that? And I was so impressed by his delivery. This guy did a great job preaching a seven-minute sermon in, in front of 150 of his peers. It was, it was, it was really excellent. I learned later that he had put his name in the hat, but he never heard anything back, and so he didn't know he was actually maybe going to preach that morning. He wrote his message while the other guys were preaching before him. And he's not even called to preach. He's not studying for the ministry. He's studying business, but he loves the Lord, wants to serve God. He thought, oh, an opportunity to preach, that'd be fun. And so he got up and did an excellent job. But as, as, he, was, as he was preaching... What was so impressive, my wife and I were talking about it, during his delivery is he was able to pause and collect his thoughts and move on to the next thing he wanted to say without it being awkward. Now, public speaking is not for everybody, right? And it it can become really awkward when you're not saying anything. And a lot of guys, I mean, even that morning would, whenever there was a pause, whenever they needed to think, I mean, they would stumble and they would fumble and they would, it would get weird. This guy was able to, to stop, pause, and it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, a, a really long silence where it made you uncomfortable, but it was just time to stop, think, and collect his thoughts and move on to the next thing that he wanted to say and say the right thing instead of the wrong thing. That was great in preaching. We need to learn to do that in conversation. We need to learn to do that in everyday life. You will be a much more effective communicator. You'll be a little slower to speak. You know what we do instead? We talk all over each other. We interrupt each other. We can't wait for the person to finish what they're saying so that we can say what we need to say. Because what we need to say is way more important than what they need to say. I don't know if we admit to thinking that, but your actions speak louder than your words, right? So be swift to hear, be slow to speak, be slow to wrath. Verse number 20 says, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Let me give you some cross-references. I'll read them quickly. We're running out of time this morning. Proverbs 14, 17, on being slow to wrath. He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly. And a man of wicked devices is hated. Proverbs 14, 29. He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. Proverbs 15, 18. A wrathful man stirreth up strife, but he that is slow to anger appeaseth strife. This is apparently a really good quality. Look at Proverbs or listen to Proverbs 16, 32. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He that ruleth his spirit 
than he that taketh a city. Um, you say, am I slow to wrath? Am I quick to wrath? I don't know. Wait till you have kids and you'll find out. The reason I had these verses ready is because I had made this list for my own personal use in trying to not err in verse number 16. So be slow to wrath. Control yourself. Verse 21. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. We had that truth in Verse 18, here it is again in a different context. There are several terms we need to define in the verse. Filthiness, foulness, dirtiness, nastiness, corruption, pollution, defilement, impurity. Lay that apart. Get rid of that. In the context, I need to properly acknowledge the goodness of God, verse 17, and listen when I'm instructed and verse 19 and shut up and stop talking so much in verse 19 and control my temper in verse 19. Why? Because if I don't, my life is going to become filthy, corrupt, defiled, impure. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity. Superfluity. Pretty cool word. Only one time in the Bible. It means superabundance, a greater quantity than is wanted. Something beyond what is necessary. Superfluity of what? Too much of what? Naughtiness. Naughtiness. We often associate that with children. Being mischievous or sneaky. But it's more than that. Badness, wickedness, evil principle or purpose, perverseness. Lay it apart. Get rid of that. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness, superfluity of non Receive with meekness the engrafted word, just able to save your souls. Now, meekness is important. Those that minister the word of God are commanded to do so with meekness. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Galatians 6.1 says, You with your spiritual restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. 1 Peter 3.15, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So the person who's declaring the word of God, ministering the word of God, trying to be a blessing to brother and sister in Christ, they're supposed to demonstrate meekness, some humility. Meekness is actually receiving offense without being injured by it. In this passage, it's not the giving of the word of God that requires meekness. It's receiving the word of God that requires meekness. Receive with meekness the engrafted word. If you're going to do God's word and be blessed by God's word, you're going to have to hear it meekly. What does that mean? It's receiving offense without being injured by it. Because there are things in the Bible that are going to be contrary to to your life. And when the preacher preaches the Bible, that's going to require putting his finger on things in your life that are, verse 16, errors that need to be corrected. And you're going to take it personally. And if you're not meek, you're going to get mad at the messenger. And if you're not meek, you're just going to bow up and stiffen your neck 
and harden your heart and make an excuse to not do the word of God. But if you're meek, if you're humble, if you allow yourself to be offended and realize that it's for your good, you can receive the word of God and it can work effectually in your life and bring about some blessed results. But the Bible is going to cross the way that you want to live. The Bible is going to run contrary to your flesh. The Bible is going to offend you. What are you going to do when you're offended? You need to receive with meekness the engrafted word. Let me read you a couple references. Psalm 25, verse 9. Psalm 25 and verse 9 says, The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. Just write it down. Isaiah 29, 19 says, The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So meekness, very important. Receive with meekness, James 1 will finish up the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, I am not a botanist. I am not a horticulturist. I'm not even exactly sure what that word means. I don't do plants. I don't plant stuff. I don't grow stuff. Flowers come to our house to die. Right? But I looked it up. What does engrafted mean? To be engrafted is to be inserted into a stock for growth and propagation. You're taking something, putting it into something else so that that thing will grow. Okay? Inserted into a stock for growth and propagation set or fixed deep. So, so God's word, you need to receive God's word with meekness because it's the engrafted word. God wants to take his word and make it part of your life to bring about growth. To produce fruit so that something can spring out of that. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, the Bible says. If if you will meditate on God's word, Psalm 1 says, then you'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in his season. The Bible is not just to tell you how to be saved. The Bible is given so it can become a part of you and something can come out of that from your life that glorifies God. The engrafted word. Its purpose is to bring forth fruit. In the book of Song of Solomon, there's a verse, I think it's 611, about going down to the valley of nuts. It's kind of like coming to teen Sunday school. But going down to the valley of nuts to see if there's any fruit in the valley. Just just take a little examination of your life this morning. Is God's word producing any fruit? Are you engrafting God's word in your heart? It really depends on how you receive it. And this passage gives us a lot of good instruction along those lines. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that uh, we have the Bible. Thank you for its power and its purpose in our lives. And God, I am grateful for these young people, God, these young men, these young ladies, and I pray that we would each learn to allow your word to correct us, guide us, instruct us, and uh, Lord, may it produce fruit in our lives that 
is pleasing to you. You certainly deserve it. You're so good to us, and we love you. In Jesus' name.